Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Listen to amazing and bizarre science infuse into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we'll feature abusive boobies, curious robots and nanopower. But first up, here's the news with Therese Chen. A new study from Wake Forest University has suggested that the cycle of violence resulting from child abuse may also exist in other species. The study has been published in the AUK. The researchers conducted behavioural observations on Nazca boobies, a species of seabirds which reside in the Galapagos Islands. Nazca boobies raise solitary nestlings and often have to leave them unattended while they forage at sea. It is during this time that non-breeding adults begin seeking out and interacting with the chicks. Behaviours can be affiliative, for example, the non-parental adult may preen or provide the chicks with gifts such as twig or pebbles, and in other instances they may be aggressive, where the adult pecks or shakes the chick vigorously. What the researchers discovered was that the chicks that had experienced aggressive behaviour had a greater likelihood of inflicting such behaviour when they returned to the same nesting ground years later. We were surprised by the intense interest that many adults show in unrelated young, involving really rough treatment, said Wake Forest Professor of Biology Dave Anderson. A bird's history as a target of abuse proved to be a strong predictor of its adult behaviour. Scientists from the University of Exeter have discovered that guppies from Trinidad alter their social environment as a strategy to avoid unwanted male attention specifically preferring the company of other females that were more receptive or attractive. In the case of guppies, males may harass a female by chasing and biting, and aside from the more obvious injury this may cause the female, there are other detrimental effects, such as making the female more vulnerable to predation, as well as reducing the female's ability to forage for food. By performing experimental trials, the researchers found that when given a choice between a receptive and a non-receptive females, non-receptive females preferred the company of the former. They also found that such females were harassed less. The study has been published in the Proceedings of the Royal Society and adds to the growing research that animals utilise their social environment to their advantage when it comes to sexual selection. Lead researcher Dr. Safi Darden of the University of Exeter said, It is now becoming apparent that males of some species choose to associate with relatively less attractive males to increase their chances of mating. We wanted to see if females also chose their same-sex companions based on attractiveness, but in this case, to reduce unwanted attention. Our results support the idea that social structure can develop around relative attractiveness and mating strategies. Although we focused our study on one species of fish, I would expect 
that this strategy would be seen in other species where females face similar levels of unwanted sexual attention from males. You can learn by seeing and hearing and doing, but imagine if you could learn by looking at patterns. Researchers from Boston University and ATR Computational Neuroscience Laboratories in Kyoto, Japan, call it decoded neurofeedback and have published in the journal Science. They've taken a functional magnetic resonance imaging picture of the blood flowing to parts of the brain involved in recognising an object or pictures or a pattern. Then they run some secret software over this image to create a special black and white pattern. They show you the pattern and your brain, as part of seeing the edges and contrast in the pattern, ends up with a very similar brain state to someone who has been performing the visual recognition task. They've hacked your brain by showing you a pattern on a screen. People who have seen the pattern are quicker on the visual recognition task than people who haven't seen it, even when they don't know what tasks they will be asked to do. This means that the information goes in without any of your filters in place. You can't defend against it. With pictures and video and audio, you've learned to use critical thinking and experience to stop advertisers and politicians and priests from telling you what to think and do. Imagine if they could just show you pretty patterns and your brain changed to match the state of the brain that was used to create the decoded neurofeedback. There's nothing you could do if you didn't know you were seeing it. If, say, it was hidden in a photo, and no way to counteract it if you didn't know what it was preparing your brain to do. At this stage, it's only the early visual areas that can be entrained by patterns this way, and perhaps will only work on these parts of the brain. Only time will tell. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send email to diffusion at 2SCR.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network, into Sydney on 2SCR 107.3, and over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. And it's time for Dorkbot again this month. So, on December 13th, I went out to the Carriage Works in Redfern for the latest installation of Dorkbot, which had curious robots, micro-synthesizers, people operated as puppets and mashups of radio frequencies. So we'll start with the curious robots. There was Petra Gemeinboek and Rob Saunders, who worked together to build interstitial spaces. Now, the idea was that they had robots with artificial intelligence designed to be curious. They placed these robots behind a plaster wall, and the robots could actually move up and down and sideways across the whole length of the wall, and the idea was they'd be looking for novelty. So at first they mapped the wall, and then after they'd mapped the whole wall, they got bored. And they were equipped to do something when they were bored. They had hammers. So they could talk to each other using the hammers, and they could change their environment by using the hammers. So they did. So they would make little knocks. And the little knocks would add up, and they'd cause cracks, which were really interesting. And every time the robot saw something interesting, they went over to have a long look and took some photos. And eventually, of course, they knocked holes through the wall. And if there were people on the other side at the time of day when this happened, when that was really interesting. So they took photos of those. And they've got some entertaining footage of people looking and listening to the knocks and the robots moving around, and then suddenly jerking back when a little hole appears, a little camera peeks through and looks around and sort of looks at them. 
So they brought in some prototypes. The early ones used hammers and the later ones used little picks and could actually be changed for other tools. They had pickup mics so they could interact with the environment and hear the other machines. It was the first installation in a series of works that explored the performative potential of machine-augmented architecture and its unfolding anatomical trauma, and we may get to speak to them next year. So next we had Arisvachis with his micro-patch synthesizer. Now, synthesizers are rather large equipment that you can use to make the music and all sorts of interesting sounds. Aris has made the world's smallest patching synthesizer. So he's got all sorts of amazing and wonderful little sounds from something basically the size of the palm of your hand. And then we came on to one of the more bizarre parts of the evening, which was Michaela Davies and her Subsoma project. In Subsoma, she hooks people's muscles up. Well, she hooks her own and other people's muscles, in this case a volunteer from the audience, up to wires that will send electrical signals to make the muscles contract. And all of this is hooked up through a MIDI interface to a computer where it's controlled by sound files. So she's had both music and also seismological sounds. So when the earth moves, so do you, if you're wired up. And she showed us some of what that looks like. And it's kind of weird. There's an earthquake somewhere. And as well as seeing, say, a seismograph needle move or seeing objects shake around, you've got somebody at a remote location who also shakes around to the, the sounds of the vibrations. She's had musical performances where there's one musician whose output is hooked up to the computer and the other musicians are wired up and the way they play their violins or their guitars or whatever they're playing is directly affected by the muscle movements controlled by the other musician's music. And finally, she hooked up the volunteer from the audience on the night and she played Elvis Presley's Love Me Tender and their bodies were moved literally by the music and the electrical impulses the music controlled. So that was quite amazing. And there'll be a YouTube video of that on the website when this show goes up on diffusionradio.com. And then finally, there was Barlent Sieber and Matt Robert with their Aviation Mapper. So they've taken what's known as a software radio. Software radio is a radio that receives everything that's radio and then uses software to make sense of it to work out the amplitude modulation, the frequency modulation, the encoding. And really, just how much information you can get out of it depends on how clever you are in decoding the information and how good your antennas are. He started out with online information about radio transmitters in Australia. Now, all radio transmitters have to be registered with the Australian Communications Management Authority. ACMA. And so if you're an amateur radio operator, you have to have your amateur radio transmitter registered. If you're a professional radio operator like 2SCR, you have to have your radio transmitter registered. And it actually has GPS coordinates of where all these things are. So he's mashed that information up with Google Earth. You can now look at Australia and see where all the radio sources are. And you can zoom in as much as the satellite resolution allows, which means not only can you check out in Sydney where all the radio sources are, he's also added information like who's talking to who so you can actually see the lines of sight. But you can also look in on the military installations like Pine Gap because there are registered radio sources there. Some of them really, really powerful. We're talking, you know, kilowatts at least, which is a huge amount of radio power to go out. And you can have a look at what the surrounding geography is as much as the satellite allows. This website is quite popular. He's been recording which sites 
actually go and access his site so he can see where the IP addresses are from. And there's an awful lot of them coming from the Australian Defence and Science Technology Organisation, as you might expect. They found it useful. He's been investigated to find out whether he was doing anything naughty, like hacking into databases, but it's all public information, so they're happy to use his service. And now he's looking at aircraft. Now, radar is the main way that we look at aircraft, but there's also secondary information to the radar, because all aircraft have transponders. So you can use secondary radar to ping the transponder and ask it to tell you what it knows. And what it knows is quite a lot. It'll tell you what flight number it is, what airline it is, where it's from, where it's going, and all sorts of other information. And often there's crosstalk about mechanical faults on the flight, whether it's broken toilets, apparently that happens a lot, and other things that go wrong. So he's mashed that up with Google and had his aerial going up in real time, and he's able to actually have Google Earth. There's a picture of the runway mascot, and you can see the icons of the planes where the radar says they are and where their transponders say they are and where they're going. And you can follow them around. And because it's Google Earth, you can actually get the pilot's viewpoint and see what someone on the plane would actually see as they move around. It's very impressive work. Now, Dorkbot is people doing strange things with electricity. It's technological artists. So if you have a look at Dorkbot on Google, you may find there's a Dorkbot in your area. The one in Sydney meets roughly once a month, and I highly recommend it. The sub-summer project sounds very interesting, I think. Do you think it'd be possible for the technology to develop so people could, like, say, learn an instrument or learn how to dance? Why not? Why not? I mean, a lot of those things are physical memory. So if you feel yourself doing it, then you'll remember what that feels like when you try to do it yourself. And... Stellark is someone I've had on the program earlier this year. He's been doing work in the same area. If you'd like to find out more about Dorkbot, go to dorkbotsid.boztech.net. Imagine designing a molecule with just pencil and paper and then taking that into the laboratory to make the molecules you were thinking of. Dr. Andrew McDonough does this kind of molecular synthesis in the School of Chemistry and Forensic Sciences and the Institute of Nanoscale Technologies at the University of Technology, Sydney. I asked him just what it is he's synthesising. I'm synthesising some ruthenium thalocyanine dyes. Now, I'll unpack that a little bit for you. Ruthenium is a metal, and thalocyanine is a close cousin to porphyrins. And you would see porphyrins in uh, plants, for example, the green colour in the chlorophylls. You would see it in red blood cells as part of the heme molecule that uh, gives blood its red colour. We've incorporated ruthenium into thalassinines to make new molecules that absorb quite a lot of sunlight. And our aim for that work is then to put those into dye-sensitised solar cells. We designed the dyes so that they would stick nicely onto the semiconductor surface of the solar cell. And then we designed the dye also to have a component that absorbed a lot of sunlight. It get excited by the sunlight and inject an electron into the semiconductor. Now, what's the difference between dye-sensitised photoelectric cells and the normal, well, the, the more familiar silicon 
photoelectric cells that people would have heard of? The silicon solar cells rely only on the semiconductor, that is the silicon, uh, and it may be doped so that it has particular uh, electrical properties. The disolar cells rely on two components, the semiconductor, which in this case is a titanium oxide, it doesn't absorb sunlight. So to get that to absorb sunlight, you need to sensitise it with a dye that does absorb the sunlight. The advantages are that it's much, much cheaper. Silicon's actually quite expensive, both in dollar terms and in energy costs to prepare. These materials are actually quite cheap in both of those, both of those terms. So in terms of making a cheaper, more affordable solar cell, it has those advantages. The disadvantage, and the big disadvantage, is that it's less efficient. And that's where a lot of work's been going on at the moment. Now, one thing I should tell you straight up is that we, we haven't actually made a more efficient cell. Our research found something completely different, and that something overlooked by people is how much dye you get on your cell yes. has a big impact. Strangely enough, these things have been investigated for at least 15 years and nobody bothered to actually measure the exact number of dye molecules in each unit area of cell. So they were mainly focusing on the type of dye and not how much dye they were getting mm, Precisely. What people have been doing in the past is thinking of new dyes that they could prepare. They would then go ahead and synthesise those new dyes, test them in a solar cell had previously existing dyes, if it was worse they would move on. What we found is we put a lot of effort into designing our molecule. We designed it with a part that would very efficiently adhere to the surface and inject electrons. We designed it with a part that would very efficiently absorb sunlight and we were pretty confident that when we put those two bits together we would come up with a good dye. It turns out that the efficiency of our cells was somewhat less than that of the standard dye that had been in existence for at least 10 to 15 years. So we went back and asked why. Then we came up with a method where we could actually measure the exact number of dye molecules per cell. When we did that, we found that we'd put in so much effort in designing our molecule, it got so big that we couldn't fit as many on there. A simple calculation where we divided the number of molecules by the area that we were examining, we found that per molecule our dye was actually better. It did exactly what we designed it to do. There were just so few of them on there because we'd made it so big that we couldn't actually compete with the, the existing dyes. So the step that you took that the other people didn't think to take was measuring what was going on, actually having a look. It seems pretty fundamental, yeah, it, it's a fundamental part of science that you measure things. And we were really surprised when we went back through the literature that nobody had bothered to do a precise measurement of the number of dyes that they were incorporating into their cell. Amazing. So, yeah. And so when we did that, we found that there's a simple factor that people have overlooked, and that's the size of their dye. Mm. If you make your molecule too big, you just can't fit as many of them on the cell. So is it getting as many molecules on the cell as possible or is it getting the big ones that are more efficient or, or what, what's the right mix that you're after? Ah, that's the thing. It's a trade-off. Uh, you need to trade off the number of dye molecules you can get in your cell and the efficiency of the dye molecule itself. And that was something that hadn't been really described in the literature up to date, that there was this trade-off. 
trawling back through the literature over the 10 years, we could see people that had put a lot of effort into making these very large molecules. And they were a little disappointed at the end when they didn't perform. But no one had really bothered to think that, well, maybe there's just not very many of them in their solar cell. Mm. And the number of that you can fit in the solar cell depends on the structure, doesn't it? Like at the small scale. Mm, it does. Molecules can range in size from very, very small, with literally only two atoms, up to molecules that are the size of proteins and bigger, with many, many thousands of atoms. So there's a big range in which to work. And the optimum range is still, I guess, yet to be determined for solar cell applications, that is. So now that you've got a really good dye and you've worked out what you need to find out to make it better, what's the next step? Well, to be honest, the next step is the dye solar cells themselves uh, are starting to move into the commercial area. We've actually changed track a little bit and we've got more excited with our measurement technique for measuring the number of dyes. Um, there's some new technology out there that allows you to measure uh, very accurately the number of molecules that exist on a particle surface. And so we've started taking that technology onto other particles. And we're looking at measuring similar dyes on gold particles, uh, dyes on gold surfaces. And you can get to a stage now where you can actually count the number of dyes that you're putting around a particular particle. And you might think, you know, dye molecules, there must be many thousands. Well, the number is closer to 12 in the system that we're using. So we have gold nanoparticles with pretty close to precisely 12 molecules attached to the outside. What is the technology you're using to look at the molecules? The main technique that we use is a technique called inductively coupled plasma mass spectrometry. And there are two ways we can access our particular dye. The first is to dissolve it up in a solution and introduce it into a plasma. And that plasma then ionizes the dye into its component atoms. Those atoms are then detected in a mass spectrometer. Uh, another more exciting way of doing that is if your surface is subjected to a laser which is the second technique we use, laser ablation, inductively coupled plasma mass spectrometry. The laser will actually blast some of the dye off the surface. It's, it's ablated by the laser. It's then swept into the plasma, where it's then ionized and detected again with the mass spectrometer. And that's a very, very sensitive technique. And we can actually detect a single layer of atoms of our molecule that are sitting on top of a surface of gold. Wow. And gold nanoparticles are used for all sorts of things now. I mean, there was something in the news recently about a cancer treatment using gold nanoparticles. And I know Mike Corti's been working on them at UTS in a treatment for toxoplasmosis gondii. And, well, there seem to be endless uses. Mm. Yeah, gold nanoparticles are great. Uh, the reason is, first of all, the gold itself is non-toxic. Um, you can eat gold if you like, and it's certainly not going to bother you. But what you can do is using chemistry, you can functionalise the outside of your particle with just about anything you want. And so we functionalise them with our dye. You could functionalise them with an antibody. Uh, you could functionalise them with other metals. You can make sort of a gold core and then a shell around the outside of just about anything you want. And so it serves as a very nice inert vehicle 
to carry anything that you would like. You can use into biological systems. Uh, you can carry it into any system pretty much that you care to think of. I'm a little concerned that people might think that the synthesis of these molecules is something that's incredibly technically challenging. Uh, it's not. We would sit down to design these molecules on a piece of paper. We would draw them first and because there are some pretty straightforward rules that will tell you if they're chemically feasible, we draw them first on a piece of paper, then we go into the laboratory and we assemble them. Um, we don't assemble them one molecule at a time. You make many, many molecules in a batch. But the synthesis techniques are reasonably straightforward, so it doesn't require exceptionally specialised equipment. And the training that's required is something that would be accessible to someone, you know, even at an undergraduate level at, uh, at university. So. so there you go. So you could go from drawing the molecules on a bit of paper to going into the lab and synthesising them and making something new. That's exactly what we do. We do precisely that. And the key to the whole thing is to having a good idea of what molecule you might want to make. Uh, if you think about the number of combinations and permutations of atoms you could put together, uh, it's been estimated that if you just take, say, the first 30 elements and you decide you'll only make molecules with maybe 300 atoms in them, then by best estimates, there are not enough atoms in the universe currently to make them all at once. So you've got to have a pretty good idea of why you're going to make your particular type of compound. Well, Dr. Andrew McDonough, thank you very much. Right, thank you. That was Dr. Andrew Donner of the School of Chemistry and Forensic Science, the Institute of Nanoscale Technology from the Faculty of Science at the University of Technology, Sydney. And that's all from us this time on Diffusion. You can send email to diffusion at 2SCR.com. That's diffusion at 2SCR.com. And tell us your thoughts, feelings and stories. If you'd like to be on radio and you live in Sydney, we need more volunteers on Diffusion. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program was Therese Chen. I produce Diffusion in the studios of 2SCR in Sydney, and Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Looking at the URL, the first thing that sticks out is the colon. And how about a slashing or cutting sound for the slashes? To complete the experience, we might throw in the HTTP and maybe some kind of download sound. www.diffusionradio.com Lachlan Watmore on guitar. Yeah. <laughs>